Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. It's such a pleasure to have Crystal Wilkinson on our Think Humanities podcast. Crystal grew up on her grandparents' 10-acre farm in Casey County, Kentucky. Her grandfather was a tobacco farmer. Her grandmother, who Crystal says was the first writer she knew, guided her, encouraged her to develop the acclaimed writer she is today. Her rural upbringing was brought to the page in two of her first published works, Blackberries, Blackberries, winner of the 2002 Chafin Award for Appalachian Literature, and Water Street, a finalist for the Orange Prize for Fiction. Her first novel, The Birds of Opulence, won the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence, as well as a number of other awards. A poet, too. She is the recent winner of the Denny Plattner Award in Poetry from the Appalachian Heritage Magazine and the Sally Bingham Award from the Kentucky Foundation for Women. She's a member of the famed Appalachian Poets and currently serves as Appalachian Writer-in-Residence at Berea College. She and her partner, artist Ron Davis, own and operate Wild Figs Books and Coffee in Lexington. And it's such a delight to talk with you again and to have you here. Oh, it's so good to be here, Bill. Crystal, um, we talked a moment ago before we started about how busy you are. Um, I see uh, numerous uh, posts on Facebook and schedules. Uh, you just told me of a number of appearances that you're going to make that I was not aware of. You are also going to be um, the uh, feature uh, at the Carnegie Center's um, uh, summer uh, gala, if you will, and uh, to talk to, uh, I'm sure, what, what is going to be uh, a sold-out audience uh, of your fans and uh, maybe people who aren't familiar with your work, but uh, uh, will be uh, by the time you uh, address that audience. But I want to start a little bit back uh, okay. to, to that really curious, uh, you and I have known each other for a few years, and I know your writing, and I remember Blackberries, Blackberries so well, uh, but I, I, I don't think until I'd read that your, your grandmother was the first writer you knew. So talk to me about that phrase. Well, um, my grandmother, well, first of all, my gra- I was raised by my grandparents and they had uh, limited education. My grandmother, my grandfather had a third grade education. My grandmother had uh, an eighth grade education. And my grandmother always wanted to be, first of all, a teacher. Uh, she wanted to be a school teacher, but her parents wouldn't let her leave Indian Creek um, to do that. So she ended up marrying my grandfather and they of course had their 60 acres there and they started raising um, their families. But my grandmother, both my grandparents were artists in their own ways. My grandfather was a, sort of a regular Appalachian artisan and he whittled and um, made play pretties and things like that. And my grandmother was always a writer. Um, not that anything that she had done had ever been published. Like she loved writing letters and she also wrote poems and songs like on the back of envelopes in her. She always had one of those little small 
uh, pads that many women of her time would would write letters on um, a little little pad um, of paper that she always um, had. She always bought the same kind over and over. Uh, but she also wrote her poems and her, her not so much stories, but they're mostly songs and poems in those little books. And I would watch her do that. And, and I think what I remember most is how, you know, she was very busy, right? A really busy country woman, uh, farm woman. Uh, so she, there was always lots of work to do. And she was also a domestic. She cleaned houses for people. Uh, but it was something about when she was writing uh, and I would watch her that um, there was a sereneness about her that I didn't see when she was doing anything else. And uh, I think that was that planted a seed. And then her love of books and how she extended that to me also planted a seed. So I, I very much think that she's the reason why I'm a writer. What kind of little girl were you growing up in the rural Kentucky and being influenced by your grandparents? Um, maybe because we were so isolated and maybe because I was my mother's only child and the only child on the place when they were raising me on that, that big area. Uh, I was really quiet really shy and uh, my favorite thing to do was to sort of stand back and watch or to hide and watch uh, so I was sort of the shy observer uh, of everything and I was like a nosy little quiet kid I was so quiet that often adults didn't know I was in the room um, so that made some great times for observing not that anything wild or crazy was going on but um, I was a little, a little camera uh, and just sort of observed the voices and took things in and uh, yeah, very, very quiet, um, shy little girl. Were you writing then? I was. Uh, my grandmother always told the story uh, that when I had read all the books in the house that I started writing my own. Um, because of her I could read very early, like I could read before I went to school and that's how I ended up graduating from high school at 16 because uh, they gave me the reading test and the reading comprehension test. They didn't give me the math test. I probably still couldn't pass the math test. But um, uh, yeah, so I was writing then. I was writing poems, um, little stories. I mean, I think I was 12 the first time I wrote an op-ed to the newspaper. Um, I wrote songs too. I remember sending, there was a, a show on, this will age me, but uh, tell you how old I am, but I, there was a show on KET called Zoom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, they had, oh, I love that show, I love those characters, and I remember writing a song for them. So I wrote a song and sent it into Zoom. And so I was sort of, um, I guess, sort of secretly courageous. Like, I, I love the idea that I could write something and send it out into the world and not have to go with it. Like, I loved that idea. So I was always ordering things from magazines and always writing letters or sending things off. And uh, those were all my first steps into writing. What uh, happened after you uh, graduated high school at, at a young age? I, I must make note of the fact, uh, as you probably know, we're steeped in uh, all the Kingsmen and Robert Penn Warren uh, 
this year with our Kentucky Reads program. He, mm-hmm. he too graduated uh, high school at 16 mm-hmm. uh, and went to Vanderbilt at that time. So you went to school right away? I did, yeah. I uh, ended up going to Eastern. And actually, I don't think my, my grandparents didn't um, point me toward going to school. I was that first generation to, to go to college. And my grandmother, you know, coming from that family, that very uh, insular, rural family that didn't really believe that um, outsiders were, uh, that outsiders were, were harmful in some ways, that that's where all the things were going on out there in the world. Uh, I was never encouraged to go beyond Kentucky. So when I graduated at 16, I went to Eastern and my grandmother thought that was far enough. That was about 45 minutes from where we lived. Did you have classmates or high school friends who also attended school with you, or were you? No, no, I was totally on my own. Uh, there was a, a friend who um, I knew that lived in Stanford, Kentucky, that went to school with my cousins, and um, her name was Sue, and so Sue, also went to Eastern, but she was a little older than I was. And so uh, she and I became roommates because we already knew each other. And um, and that was it. It was a very, um, I was very excited about it. Uh, but I was also very naive. Um, still very quiet. What very surprised shy. you or maybe... Um, whether a negative or positive way about going off to school? Um, well, it was the first time I had ever really been on my own away from my grandparents. So there was something very uh, wonderful about that. You know, imagine uh, a rural girl uh, was used to uh, gravel roads and uh, an outhouse. My grandparents didn't even have indoor plumbing until after I went to college. Um, going to college, and it was in Richmond, so it wasn't like, it wasn't even Lexington, so it wasn't like the big city, but it felt big city to me. Um, and uh, my grandfather let me bring my car. I had a, a Pacer, fairly new car, a 76 Pacer. And uh, <laughs> um, so I thought that I, I was very um, scared, still very shy, very um, leery of the people that I met. I was sort of made fun of. I had all the, style-wise, I had it down pat. You know, I had my, my outfits that I spent all summer mm-hmm. getting my outfits together and um, buying books and being prepared in that way. Um, but uh, even going to Eastern, a lot of, the other students made fun of my accent. Like my very um, rural, very twangy accent on a black woman, a young black woman was uh, uh, surprising to them. And I was surprised that they were surprised. So it was just, uh, so those were some of the things that I went through. Um, And then again, just being very naive. I remember uh, letting someone borrow my car just because they, ask and (laughs) I hope it came back okay uh, it did it was gone for a long time gone for about four days these girls were gone for about four days and they finally brought my car back 
What do you remember about those first uh, years at Eastern um, and your your studies? And um, what what you, did you embrace the college experience? I did. I think I did most of the things that that other young people going to college were doing in the uh, 70s and early 80s. Um, So I got involved in uh, Greek life a little bit. I uh, worked in the library. The library had been my first job uh, in high school. Uh, Worked for the Casey County Library was my very first job and uh, so it was also my first job in college. and I found that the library was a place of solace. Um, I often think back on those times and I feel like I did a lot of uh, pretending uh, to try to fit in because I really was young. I mean, I was 16 and I probably was even, probably younger than that mentally, like really unprepared for, um, for college. Um, maybe I was, sort of scholastically prepared, um, at least for some of the class, certainly not algebra, but, <laughs> but I was prepared for, for, for the writing classes and um, I really dug in and was studious. Um, and what found myself often going to the library for solace, like that was still, and I do that now. Uh, now, uh, Several of the libraries, uh, public libraries around town know me, um, you know, not just because I'm a writer, but they know me, the staff knows me because I come there all the time. That's where I seek solace. Uh, When I go to Berea, I go to the public library, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes to the library on campus. So um, libraries have been my solace. Mm -hmm. What a better place. You're surrounded by books. what writing courses did you begin to take what were as soon so, as you got there as I a freshman? majored in journalism uh, when I went to college and I knew in my soul and in my bones that I wanted to be a creative writer um, but again I was from this family that didn't know anything about college I was very shy I remember my sitting with my grandparents in the counselor's office and I was so shy with my head tucked in that uh, the counselor was talking they was talking to my grandparents and she said, so what does she want to do? And my grandmother said, well, she likes to write. And the counselor said, well, I'm going to put down journalism. And we all said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, of course I knew what a journalist did, um, but I somehow had this vision still that... Uh, I would be at a desk somewhere and I would, would do the writing and then I would be um, not have to go out into the world and interview people. So the first the first story that I had to write for journalism class, I made up uh, because it involved going, I think we were supposed to go to the Madison County Council and interview these people. And I just, that was the most horrifying thing in the world uh, to think about for me. Uh, so I made it up and uh, I got an A on it until I told her that I made it up and then I got that A turned into an F. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so in that way, being in the world as a shy person and um, uh, 
college was very hard for me, but I took all of the writing classes that I could take. I took my journalism, I went through my journalism track, uh, but I also took all the creative writing classes that, uh, that Eastern had to offer. Did you um, enjoy fiction and creative writing uh, more than you did uh, nonfiction and... I did. Yeah, uh, and it mainly was because of the interaction. Like, I enjoyed writing opinion pieces, um, but it wasn't until really after college, after I graduated, that I began to, uh, even though I tried to work on it, um, when I was in, in college, one of the first things I did for myself, just to try to, you know, drop this shyness cold turkey, and almost an introversion mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. what I had, uh, shy and an introvert. So... I took a speech class. Uh, I said, I'm just gonna do this. I'm gonna knock it in the bud and go ahead and do this. And uh, it was horrible and horrifying. Like mm -hmm. I had lots of anxiety. I almost fainted when I got, you know, you prepared all semester and you did these various kinds of speeches, you know, an instructional speech. Extemporaneous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all of those, yeah. And, uh, Every time I, I did a speech, I would almost faint. But I, I mean, I think it helped me, and I, yeah. and I went through that. I also think it helped me to, to socialize a little bit and be in, uh, attached to some of the Greek organizations that yeah. I was attached to. Um, but it was still there, and, and I still sort of went. Nobody knew for the longest that I was a creative writer. I mean, my grandparents knew, but nobody knew I would write little things. And I might show them to my professors, but didn't show them to anyone else. So it wasn't until, um, you know, I was a young adult woman uh, living here in Lexington. Um, and because I still, I got, you know, I became an adult and got over some of my introversion, um, but I still was fairly shy. So I went into public relations for a long time uh, instead of going into journalism. So I was able to do you know, I work for the city. Well, you know, I, the time that I've known you, and I'm going to um, I'm gonna mention a date because I do, and maybe I read it in, in preparation for our conversation, but I'm not sure I knew that, I knew there was a gap between college and were you in the first class of the MFA class at Spalding in 2000 or two? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And was, was Blackberries published in 2002? Blackberries was published that so in two thousand. Two thousand. Okay. Yeah. So okay. it was published before. Okay. I went into the MFA. Program. So this 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 is what is interesting. So you had this this other life that you were a professional person working in public relations and doing work. Did you say for the city? Yeah, I worked for the yeah. city, and I worked for the. I worked a lot of places. I worked yeah. for the state, uh, the arts council as a PR person. I worked for the city in uh, public relations. And I, then I went to the Carnegie Center, and I, where I was an assistant director and was in charge of public yeah. relations there, um, and taught some classes. And Blackberries was published when I was working at the Carnegie Center, um, and so it was wonderful for all of us. And you know, Jan Eisenhower and um, mm -hmm. Phyllis McAdams mm -hmm. and um, Teresa Maynard, like all of those folks, they went through this process with me. And so every process along the way of publishing a book, um, I had this group of women that were there with me mm -hmm. saying, well, let's look at the book covers. Well, let's 
what else is happening? How's this working out? So that was a that was wonderful. Um, in my first stints at teaching were at the Carnegie Center as well. How long did you work on Blackberries before it was published? Um, it had been well probably all the way back to college some of the stories uh, at least the the germ of the ideas uh, stemmed from all the way back into college and even some of those college stories probably had their origin um, even before that I had been writing for years and years and then had a switch turn on um, at some point um, Mainly it happened after college, but even at the end of high school, of um, I was trying to write stories about, um, I don't know, people who lived in New York and Chicago, and um, because I thought that's what all stories were about. Um, didn't think that the life that I was living or that we were living was certainly not conducive to fiction didn't see how that would work at all. Um, there were no, I had no books by any black people when I was growing up. I remember my favorite book was um, Where the Red Fern Grows. Uh, I think because of the landscape in it, I was able to, to, to relate to that, but I didn't really connect that uh, to myself as a writer. Um, so, but at some point, the, the, the light switched on. I think a lot of that had to do with the Appalachian poets um, and meeting a woman locally whose name was uh, Laverne Zabilski, who was doing um, readings around. She used to have uh, open mics at the old alfalfas. Um, yeah. And um, I used to go to those and sort of sit in the audience, and I had like my whole thing sort of hidden in my purse like a whole bunch of poems that I'd written and stories and, and thought you were going to get up in front of the crowd but didn't but didn't yeah no and um, it was Laverne who introduced me to Frank at one of those events and uh, Frank and I started talking and it was sort of unbelievable that we had never met because um, he lived he grew up in Danville and I grew up in on the Indian Creek in Casey County, so there was Boyle County and Casey yep. County right beside each other, um, and I had cousins in Danville and had come in and out of Danville and Stanford, and so had he, and um, we had never met, and our first cousins were married to each other, <laughs> and uh, we had never met, and so he introduced me to the other Afro-Latin yeah. poets, and uh, that sort of group, the something about being able to see yourself suddenly, um, to see other people who were doing things that you were doing, uh, was just very powerful. And then everything sort of took off from there. When you mentioned that um, you thought you had to write about people in New York and, mm -hmm. and in larger cities and all of that, uh, and, and you, you, you soon found out by trial and error that, that you didn't have to do that. I still but, have some of those horrible, <laughs> horrible stories. But, uh, and you didn't, you didn't read black writers I when you were growing up. I didn't know any black writers until what? after college. There really? was not any honor shelves in my school. Um, in 
grade school or high school. There was not one black writer that I was introduced to or not one black writer on the shelves of any of our libraries. I find that, and maybe I don't, hard to believe, that, that you weren't exposed to, uh, to those writers. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, and I, I don't want to uh, jump too, too far into the now, but uh, at our Kentucky Humanities Kentucky Book Fair last year, you were on stage with Bell Hooks, mm-hmm. and uh, it, um, it was one of the grandest uh, duos that I've ever mm-hmm. seen anywhere in public. And, and I guess I had known of her, I'm much older than you are, but I knew the Bell Hooks of, um, of her, uh, her growing up, and, and I had met her, and um, then the way she sort of has gone through this um, metamorphosis, if you will, to, to who she is today, which mm-hmm. is just wonderful and grand, and, and, and she's given so much back to Kentucky after coming back here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, did, you didn't read her early work when no, she was... No, I met Belle in the 90s, um, and by that time I had already starting out. Of course, I'd read uh, Black Writers by then, but not not in my formative years yeah. um, and not in college, you know, post-college. I began to seek out... Um, um, African American writers and the Kentucky Women Writers Conference was very influential mm. uh, upon me. But the first time I met Belle, um, I had read her work and I didn't connect her to Kentucky. It wasn't until oh, she came. I thought true. she was from New York. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until she came and uh, said, and I just remember my head turning off the axis because one of her books, and it's not a, um, not not any of the more famous books, but um, a book called Sisters of the Yam, which was about um, black women and uh, self-discovery and recovery and Mm -hmm. things like that. And I read that book and I was so, uh, I carried it around like the Bible and we had started our own sort of Sisters of the Yam circle um, here in Lexington. And I think Perhaps even during that time, I thought she was from New York. Hmm. And when I met her, I thought she was from New York until uh, until um, somebody said Hopkinsville. And I just remember my head spinning all the way around. I'm like, oh, she's yeah. from Kentucky? Yeah. Um, and then my other Kentucky um, influence was Gail Jones. Yeah. When I came upon the work of Gail Jones, yeah. um, that also changed my life. Is she still alive? Yeah. But not writing and not. Uh, um, do you see I her? I suspect uh, no. I don't see her. Um, for for our listeners, uh, Gail Jones was a uh, uh, African American uh, prolific writer of uh, of some bestsellers. Mm-hmm. Um, about now, geez, this is going to twenty five years ago or so. I mean, she had what wasn't it during the the eighties and early nineties when she was. Uh, like her heyday, yeah, 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 yeah. She, well, yeah. That's when White Rat came out. Yeah, Toni Morrison was her editor at Random House. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. And so she had Corregidora. Uh, yeah, Corregidora is the man uh-huh. and uh, several um, collections of poetry that came out. 
And again, for listeners, uh, there was an incident, uh, unfortunately, that created some circumstances that um, uh, did not allow her to continue her her literary career. Mm-hmm. And for a while, she um, she sort of uh, disappeared, if you will. Although I, some people were in contact with her, Nikki Finney was mm-hmm. was uh, close yeah, to her. Yeah, and I don't think it's the first time that Gail disappeared. Yeah, like she she disappeared before that, and 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 uh, was. Uh, out of the country for a while, um, and you know we're talking about a woman who's extremely intelligent. Yeah. Uh, I saw her read, and I think this is correct that when she read at UK years ago, um, I think she may have read in Portuguese or oh. something like part of her her work. Um, so I think she I think it was Portugal that she yeah. lived in. It may have been another country, um, but it wasn't the first time that she disappeared. And you know. I, and she's gone off the radar again. Um, she had those two books that that came out um, that put in the nineties, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Mosquito Woman and uh, The Healing, mm-hmm. and those books were very well received. And mm-hmm. she was nominated for a National Book Award yeah. for one of them. And then, uh, you know, yeah, some things happened, and then she went back. Uh, mm-hmm into uh, just withdrawn from again. society yeah yeah but uh, I suspect that she's writing I don't know that for, for mm-hmm. sure but I, I suspect that someone um, like her is still writing whether or not um, these things are published that's mm-hmm. another question but um, I suspect that she's still writing I know that she uh, blurbed a novel for uh, Rachel Harper um, yeah. whose father was her mentor and friend oh. not that long ago so um, I didn't know that yeah 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 she she uh, we know Rachel from Spalding. From Spalding yeah yeah she blurred Rachel's first book what was a challenging uh, but important for you to write your first novel that has done so well the birds of opulence mm-hmm. what was challenging then challenging and then what what was what felt like it you were at the point that you could do that and and be successful at being a novelist well I um, I mean I had no idea of whether I'd be successful or not and you know I haven't haven't really built my career around success um, and, and that may sound odd but I I, I write the books that are on my heart to tell, and so I wrote that that book, and it took me many years to sort of figure out what the book was trying to say and how it wanted to say it, and I fought with it a little bit. You know, I fought with it uh, quite a bit for a number of years because I thought, well, this is my third book, and although I don't, I'm not uh, enamored with mainstream success, um, Maybe it should be more mainstream, and so I wrestled it and tried to make it more um, linear and more straightforward, uh, and I found that it just didn't fit. Um, my agent and several editors that were interested in the book um, urged me to do that for marketability uh, reasons, to make it more mainstream and more linear and more marketable. and. Uh, I just said, well, maybe I'll write a book one day that 
is more linear and of course I'm working on a novel that's pretty linear but um, this one's not it like I'm writing about mental illness I'm writing about ancestral memory uh, and these are things that don't lend themselves to a linear narrative strategy so mm. I'm just I just can't do it I'm just not going to do it <laughs> and so I was kind of defiant and I put it out there so so when it did become somewhat successful in its own right. I, I, I um, that made me very happy. I was very, very pleased that other people got it um, without me having to make it into something that I didn't want it to be, or that the book didn't seem to want to be. I think it's a tribute to your your talent, and I mean that in in every sense of the word. That's not a word that you hear a lot about writers. I mean, it's just that you. Um, people got it because uh, you did such a, a masterful job with it. Maybe that's the simplest way to put it. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I just, um, yeah, I have a hard time uh, with, um, you know, we we learn these things, um, these tenets of writing, and I think that um, in general we need to to follow them until it's time not to. <laughs> and this was a book that just, um, it just could not uh, take sort of that traditional route. And, and sort of all my books have been non-traditional in a way. Um, and I, I, it was important for me to tell the story of the characters, uh, as with all three of my books, it's been important for me to to tell um, the stories in a way like you know Blackberries is very. Um, uh, people ask me to describe you know when you go to these book festivals, people say, "So tell me about this book. Tell me about this one. Tell me about this one." They want you to tell them uh, about your books individually, and I always uh, when I describe Blackberries, I always say. Those stories came to me as if I was sitting on a porch and somebody was telling them from, from my home place. And, uh, and then the second book, um, I found that it was more literary. Mm. Um, I felt like it still had those voices, um, but there was a big nod to... Um, Sherwin Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio. Yeah, you were growing as a writer. I mean, yeah. yeah, you were maturing. Yeah, and uh, and then Birds, I think, is a combination of both of those mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. I, I want to just get get a, a brief comment uh, because of, of something that you posted on uh, on Facebook uh, recently, um, mm -hmm. and it's just because I, I want your your understanding um, of where. A prominent writer uh, in Kentucky and in the world feels now that you have more license to, to comment on on the state of affairs mm -hmm. of things. And uh, this, by the way, uh, to listeners, uh, was from the the British uh, uh, the Guardian, um, and uh, the subtitle is uh, or the title is uh, how white women use strategic tears to avoid accountability. And I want to read just a, a, a line or two from that. Um, Trauma assails brown and black women from all directions. There is the initial pain of being subjected to gender racism and discrimination. There is the additional distress of not being believed or supported. 
and of having your words and your bravery seemingly credited to others. Uh, we're in still um, a very healthy, I think, open conversation with with people of color, with with uh, and and I put white people in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, that we can be more comfortable talking about uh, the Me Too movement and things that are are uh, wrong with our world today. Tell me about sort of your thoughts um, in in posting this and commenting on it, and a number of other posts that you've had that that really address where we are today mm-hmm. in the world. So. Um... What I find is that because I am from Kentucky and because Kentucky is predominantly white, uh, a lot of my readers are predominantly white. Um, A lot of people who are on my social media, uh, I'm one of the few black people that they know. So I know that to uh, the people that I'm involved with um, nationally and internationally, uh, that I'm sort of preaching to the choir, but um, I often use, um, you know, I use social media for a lot of things. Like, I don't use it as, uh, again, I don't ever do anything like I'm, like people say I'm supposed to. So I don't use <laughs> social media uh, for my brand, yeah. whatever to that is. To promote yourself. Yeah, yeah right. Uh-huh. And, and I will, you know, if yeah. I'm going somewhere, I'll post something on there. If my granddaughter does something cute, I'll post that on there. <laughs> if, uh, if Ron does something yeah. and we have this sort of banter that we do as a couple, uh, back and forth sometimes it's just for fun and sometimes we're bantering about some artistic or mm-hmm. intellectual mm-hmm. Uh, thing and sometimes I come across articles that I have talked with my friends who are persons of color about that I know that many of my white friends on my timeline don't know about so a lot of times I'll just drop something in there uh, to begin a conversation and you know you know my schedule uh, so part of it's the schedule and part of it is like okay now you all talk amongst yourselves like I'll drop something down like that and sometimes I'll come back and respond and sometimes I won't uh, but I'll come back in and um, it's not that I'm pleased that there's been uh, a fight very often it ends up in a fight somebody unfriends me and people go you know we don't know. I don't mm-hmm. see them stomping off, but that's what I imagine they're doing on social media that they're stomping off uh, mad. But um, many times I, I see a conversation sort of weaving out um, and I feel like um, that some good work is happening. That if this is your only, only interaction with people of color mm-hmm. around an issue, uh, you immediately see both sides of the issue. And it's the same with almost everything I, I post because, you know, um, I live in the world, in the entire world. Like, I'm not just, uh, I'm from Kentucky. I'm, I live in Lexington. Um, so I, I grew up in a place that's, uh, you know, Casey County's predominantly white. Um, all my friends, uh, from high school that are on my timeline, we had the huge fights over politics. We still do have huge <laughs> fights over politics. Uh, but I also have very um, radical, very free-thinking, very um, intellectual friends of color around the country. So it's um, interesting for me to see these voices sort of come together and either 
come to an understanding or not come to an understanding uh, on the page. And then very often, um, sometimes somebody will come in and say something and I go, oh, I should respond to this. And then, I'm, and then I say to myself, no, I'm going to wait and see if somebody else responds to it. Uh, and then people do, and sometimes I feel like, uh, oh, I know her, I'm watching her get beat up. And then I'm like, oh, this is good for her. I hope, mm-hmm. I hope uh, that this is good for this person or that person uh, to see this. Um, and it's about a lot of different subjects. You know, um, the, all the things that are going on across the country regarding race, um, the Me Too movement um, has been very painful to watch. You know, if I, all the things that's come out about General Diaz and uh, Sharma mm-hmm. Alexi. Writers. Um, they were both two, two writers that I have yep. held up in high esteem. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what do you do with that? And, mm-hmm. and there are lots of people across the country that are thinking that same thing. I'm taught both their works um, for a number of years um, and then I also think about the gap yeah. that these writers are being brought forth um, but I mean yeah. part of the reality is if, if we went back and looked at the behaviors of some of the writers outside of the Me Too movement over the years our bookshelves would be pretty would look different yeah. I can't say they would be empty but they yeah. would look very different um, but I think all of that are things that we need to talk about. Yeah. Well, it's dialogue, and it's, it's, uh, it's not keeping them um, in a closet somewhere. It's uh, mm-hmm. opening up conversation uh, between all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I, I'd never quite thought of it like this until you mentioned those two writers. But I have some of the same thoughts about journalists and the ones that I used to. When, when people would ask me for tips on interviewing techniques, I would say watch Charlie Rose. And I don't say that anymore. Mm -hmm. Or I would often say, uh, who would, uh, who was one of the most interesting interviews you did or or that you had met and and talked with about journalism? And I would say Tom Brokaw. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I I, I can't say that anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think, especially in this time, like, you know, the, the the good old um, the good old boys that we've read as classics um, somehow they still sort of remain protected but the world has changed so much with things being so readily um, available it's just like a whole and I'm finding my way around in it too it's a whole different world that we live in mm-hmm. um, regarding uh, particularly regarding race and gender. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that we collectively meander through it. And, you know, social media is one way to try to meander through That's it. That's the vehicle like, today, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, everything can't be a, a public forum. I often think about that. And, of course, you know, Ron and I use the bookstore yeah. as much as we can to, to have And a lot more than forms. you ever have. Yeah. 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 Which is terrific. Um, you, uh, you're publishing another, uh, or you're, you're finishing up uh, another novel. Where are you in this process of your fourth, uh, uh, of your, your next book, your, mm-hmm. your fourth publication? Well, um, I've kind of gone back to the old way that I used to do things. Mm-hmm. One of the things I loved about being an unpublished writer is that, um, you know, if nonfiction came to me, I'd write nonfiction. If a poem came to me, I'd write a poem. If 
fiction came yeah. to me, I'd write fiction. Uh, and of course, with publication, it's like, where's the next novel? Where's the next book of fiction? Um, and I have one going, but the primary work that I'm working on is a, a nonfiction book about my mother and uh, history of uh, mental illness that she had. So um, I've been working on that for a couple years, but there's also um, a novel about a woman who moves from Kentucky to, uh, uh, let's say, the city um, to... Um, try to make a new life for herself. Um, You're going to get a chance to write about the city. Yeah. <laughs> and so she uh, she moves away, and it's about her homesickness and the loss of one of her parents and yeah. some other things. Um, and then what I found what's happened with this nonfiction book is that, um, boy, I admire you guys. Nonfiction is hard to write. It's like my inclination is, which is what I do with my fiction, is like, you know, you riding along and you run into a soft spot and it's like oh that hurts and then then for me as yeah. a fiction writer I say oh ouch so I start layering fiction on top of it I'm like okay that feels better that's underneath there uh-huh. you know sort of hidden it still tells gets at the truth that I'm trying to tell but mm-hmm. it's not me mm-hmm. it's not the full truth um, so in writing this nonfiction book about my mother I find that that's what I do like when I when I get to one of the hard places uh, I start to layer on fiction, and I have to go, no, 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 Crystal, and then I unpack yeah, it. Yeah, it's a discipline. And, and uh, it's like, okay, there it is. Yeah. And um, so what I do when I get to one of those places is I pull out of the book if it's if it's being really hard mm-hmm. at that time. And usually it's not hard because of the writing. It's hard because of working through the emotion of it. So what I've been doing is pulling out and writing a poem. Oh, how wonderful. So, uh, at the same time I'm writing this this nonfiction book yeah. about my mother, this memoir, I'm also writing poems. Oh, that's a great technique, uh, sort of a writing prompt. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I've never heard it uh, described like that before. Yeah, so I don't know if they'll be, to, if they'll end up together in the same book or if they'll be yeah. separate, but yeah. they're both sort of chugging along. Well, it's been such a treat to talk with you. The same. Thank you. The same. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.